So we are going to look at this Pasha of Lech Lecha. I want to start with a meditation from Yates, who says, That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. The salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh or fowl, commend all summer long, whatever is begotten, born and dies. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect, monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat mm -hmm. upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing. And that's from Yeats's Sailing to Byzantium, which I thought is a wonderful introduction, mm -hmm. as did Aviva Zornberg. And I want to pick up actually where she left off because she went off in a different direction about Sarah's barrenness, opening us all to this wonderful, wonderful interpretation a la Freud and Winnicott about barrenness and a feminist reading. But my issues are, are different and we all speak from our own wounds. <laughs> she says the story of Abraham is both beginning and end. Here begins the drama of the central family nation of Torah. Here ends prehistory, the rough drafts of God's intent. And the first important phase of Abraham's life is Lech Lecha, God telling him to go forth from your native land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house to the land I will show you. Now, what's missing, of course, what's missing, which we have to fill in the gap, midrashically, mystically, and mythically, is the indication of circumstance, of any previous encounter. Suddenly he gets a command. And of course the medievalists and the Hasidic masters will pick up on what makes him so great is that he's responding to the divine voice or that he has made an intellectual, theological choice that there is only one God. That came from his rational from his rational looking at the starry skies and deciding like Heschel does in Man in Search of God on the first page, uh, that there must be an author to this creation. This kind of theological armchair is what drove him to be the chosen one. But there is a preface in which the family context is sketched out. And that preface is much darker. And I would like to focus in on the gap between Noah and Lech Lecho. And Terach lived 70 years, and he begot Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, the three brothers. Now this is the line of Terach. So we're getting another genealogy list. Terach begot Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Repeats itself. And Haran begat Lot. And now it says, Vayomos Haran al aviv Terach. And Haran died Alpanei. What does Alpanei mean? And so we dive into the Midrash, Alpanei Terach. Midrash is bothered by the word Alpanei. Was it in front of him? The boy, the, the, the son dies in front of the father. And we get this wonderful story in the Midrash that fills in this gap. And we learned that in, in grade school, of course that Terach had an occupation, and his occupation was in the jewelry business. He was making idols and jewelry for idol worship. 
Not only did he, he, he had a manufacturing plant, uh, but he also had a distribution plant uh, of idols. Chadzman, one occasion he went out somewhere, and so he put Abraham, his son, he said, would you sit in the shop? Because people are coming in to buy idols. Could you please stand in my place and sell? So if a person would want to come in purchasing an idol, Abraham would say to them, how old are you? And they said, I'd be 50 or 60 years old or whatever age he happened to be. And Abraham would say, woe to you who is 50 or 60, because you want to bow down to something that was just made yesterday in the factory. It's only one day old. So they would be embarrassed. He would shame them. Shame sich nicht. You 50, 60-year-old, and you're bowing down to this little child. It's one, one day old. It's hot off the press. We just produced it. And one, one day, a woman came in carrying a large plate of fine flour. So Abraham said to her, here, this is for you. Offer it to the idols. And so Abraham rose and took an axe in his hand and smashed all the idols in the shop. And placed an axe in the hand of the largest idol among them. So not as is he smashing everything, he's going to make a joke out of it. So the dad comes home and says, what the hell is going on here? Whiskey, tango, foxtrot. And Abraham said, who did this to the idols? Abraham said, why are you denying what happened? A woman came carrying a large plate of flour. Here, give it to the idols. So I offered it before them. Whereupon this idol, the one he didn't smash holding the axe, said, I'll eat first. And this said, I eat first. So the idols had a fight and this one was bigger and he smashed the others. So Terach is now exposed with his financial loss. What are you, what are you making fun of me? You and I well know that they don't talk or move. And Abraham says to Terah, you mean they don't, they can't hear what you're telling them? You yourself proclaim that these idols are powerless. Now comes the first act of betrayal. The father betrays the son. He hands him over to Nimrod. He doesn't bash him up or whack him or put him, uh, you know, you can't use the car for the next six months. He takes him over to the authorities. He hands him over to the king of Mesopotamia. Amale, Nimrod says to Amrod, Nizgud Lanura, if as you claim we cannot bow down to man-made images, okay, so let's bow down to fire. Amale Avram, the Nizgud Lamaya, the Matvim Nura. Now there's this, dis this discussion. So Abraham says, why fire? Go to water. Water can extinguish the fire. Nimrod said, Nizgulamaya, okay, let's bow down to the water. It's almost like there's this amazing debate in a seminary 
in Oxford between two dons, smoking cigars and drinking port. Uh, let's discuss the, the evolution of the world and theology. So Nimrod said, fine, we'll, we'll, let's bow down to the water. So Abraham says, what are you talking about? The clouds carry the water. Okay, bow down to the clouds. Well, what about the clouds? Abraham says, Im why the clouds? The wind blows the clouds. It's more powerful. Let's round down to the world, the, the wind. And now the final knech. So then we should rather bow to a person who, whose lungs bellow with the wind. The wind is in the lungs of the person. Also a reference to right? God breathed into him the ruach, the wind of the spirit. You speak empty words, meaning you've tied me up in tongue-twisting casuistry. Now you want me to bow down to a, a human being? Are you crazy? I do not bow to anything but fire. So the whole thing was a charade. I only bow down. This is my religion. I bow down to the fire. Now I'm throwing in you into the fire. So the act of betrayal by the father of the son ends in the son being thrown into the Kivshon Ha'esh. And let the, the divinity that you bow down to come and save you from it. We're going to put you through a trial. And the trial will be, can your divinity save you from my divinity? This isn't between you and me. This is a theological debate, and we're going to see which divinity is more powerful. Now, his brother Haran was present, and he stood there, and he was undecided. Everyone had to make a decision. You either bow down to the fire, or you jump into the fire. Haran was undecided. And now he makes a, a, a Faustian calculation. If Abraham survives the fire, so his God is more powerful than Nimrod's God, so then I will say that I am from the camp of Abraham if I have to choose. Then Netzach Nimrod, I mean, then if Nimrod is victorious and Abraham is burnt to a crisp, uh, so then I'm from the camp of Nimrod. So since Abraham descended to the fiery pit and was saved, Nimrod asks him, so whose side are you on? I'm from Avram's side. They took him and threw him in the fire and his insides were burned to a crisp. And that's the word alpenei that the Medrash is bothered of. Vayomos choron alpenei terach doesn't mean in the lifetime of terach, as Arthur Scroll says. But midrashically, alpenei terach means he died in front of him. He came out of the fire and he was, his, his insides were burning and he dies in front of his father. That is the dark Medrash, which is the prehistory of the introduction of Abraham that then says Lech Lecha. So what, what does Lech Lecha now mean in terms 
of Abraham's psyche. Does Abraham feel in any way responsible for his brother? Should he have told his brother, listen, I don't know which bigot tzaddik you are, but if you're not up to this, you better save yourself. He doesn't. He's silent. And so becomes Abraham's wandering. That is the wandering uh, that Zoltberg talks about. Now, there's a very interesting uh, problem, because we just said that this was a trial. And we, we see from here, Asoranis Jonas, the Mishnah in Ovis, we say every summer on Shabbos afternoon, there were 10 trials, 10 trials that Abraham had. Now, the Mishnah doesn't tell us what they are. Very nice. 10 trials, Omad Bakulam. And he withstood all of the trials. Well, we all know what the most famous trial is. We talked about this yesterday. The trial, of course, was the trial of the Akeda. But before we get to that, the Rambam says the first trial is what? Lech Lecho. Lech Lecho. And then there is the famine in the land. The Egyptians take his wife. The battle of the four and the five kings. He marrying Hagar, not having children with Sarah. And number 10... Obviously, and if you look at the other Mishnayas in Pirkei there's an ascending order, right? There are 10 Kedushos, and the Kodshe Kodshim is the most holy. There's an ascending order, so there's a, a stylistic, beautiful stylistic thing that's going on here. Number 10, of course, is the Akeda. There is no mention of the trial in the Kivshon Ha'esh. Let's look at Ibn Ezra. Ah, number one is the fiery furnace. It's Ur Kazdim. Number one is Ur Kazdim. Okay, so really, Rashi doesn't mention it. When Rashi says it, he does not mention Ur Kazdim as one of them. Now, I wanted to share with you the Pirkei de Rabeleza. Who says that this is one of the ten trials? So we see in Pirkei de Rabeleza, which is very early, very early, uh, Medrash, that he was tried with ten trials and he stood firm. The first trial, when he was born. All the magnates of the kingdom and the magi sought to kill him. A very interesting midrash that he was hidden for 13 years in a cave without seeing the sun or the moon. And after 13 years, he comes out from beneath the earth, speaking Loshanar Kodesh, despising idols and holding abomination of graven images. And he trusted in the shadow of the creator. I love that because being in a cave for 13 years, reminding us of another great innovator, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the innovator and the author of the Zohar, who was also in a cave. Now he comes out of the cave and he trusts in the shadow of his creator, Betzalel, Betzel El. As it says, blessed is Baruch Hashem, Beyiftach Hashem. The second trial, he's put into prison for 10 years. Three years in Kuti, seven years in Budri. And then they send him into the furnace of fire. And God delivers him from the furnace. And the third trial is Lech Lecha. Do you see that? That is a very early witness to what's going on. Now, yesterday we struggled with a very interesting Slonomareva. Just a bit of archaeology for your... <laughs> that Uruk Hasdim, we didn't know where it was. And it wasn't until 1927 that uh, Ur Kasdim was identified by Leonard Woolley, the British uh, archaeologist, with the Sumerian city of Ur in southern Mesopotamia. And the Chaldeans settled there much, much later. This has been the subject of scholarly research as to whether that, in fact, is uh, 
Now, yesterday we learned the Slonimer Rebbe, who pointed out, and I, I remember telling you yesterday that I was still uncomfortable and left it all open, and I said, by tomorrow's podcast, I will work on this. I still haven't found the solution, of course. But there are two times that we're told Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha by this week's Pasha, go out and wander. And the second time is by the Akeda. And so the commentators say, if I may quote directly from Midrash, Shnei pa'amim ketiv lech lecha. It is written twice, lech lecha. Ve'ein onu yodim. And we don't know. Ezu chaviva. What is more beloved? Which of those two trials? Remember for the Ibn Ezra, one was the first one and one was the last. The fiery furnace of Urukazdim or the Akedah. Eze chaviva. Which is more beloved to the Reboina Shaloilom? Im Hashaniya Imarishanov. Mima Dikhsival Eretz Hamoria, because it said the second time, I want you to take him to the land of Moria, which is going to be, of course, God's apartment down here in the world, the Beis Amikdash. Oh, that's the only reason I know that that's more beloved, from the destination point. One's in Urkazdim, one's in Har Maria. One is going to Eretz Canaan, a wandering, and the other is a sitting right there, Eretz Maria. Okay, and then the Slonomer talks about two types of Mesiris Nefesh, two types of trials that any human being has to go through. The problem is, to the commentators, and I found who it was, it was Rav Shimon of Brody, uh, and Rav Weinberg quotes Rav Simcha Sissel of Brody. They are bothered by the fact that the Mishnah doesn't mention the first trial. Why is it not mentioned as one of the ten trials in the Mishnah, if it's so important? Why is the Medrash telling us? Remember, Mishnah's first century. This Medrash is Bracious Rabbah, which is third, fourth. Why is the Mishnah omitting it and the Medrash bringing it up? The Medrash, by the way, is the only place we find about going into the fire. Pikud Rabbelezer is later. Yalkut is later. So everyone steigs into why this was not even mentioned. Why is the Torah omitting the miracle of Urkazdin? And of course, Rav Meinberg and Rav Simcha Zissel of Brody and the Slonoma Rebbe yesterday came up with the idea that there are two types of challenges. One challenge is the Pearl Harbor, Urkastim in front of the courts, and he comes in and he comes out of the fire, and it's all very, very Hollywood. And many people would jump into the fire. We know that from the Holocaust, right? Uh, with the Shema Yisrael on their lips. They were not observant. But the one that says, Lech Lecho that is the daily grind, that one is much harder. The daily addictions, the daily hergel we get used to. That's what they said. All custom moments are fleeting. They don't necessarily represent the real person who emerges heroically from such situations. Lech Lecha is the ordinary test of, do I get up tomorrow for minion? <laughs> so they take this in a, in a musa, they make musa out of it. And I, I, as I said to you yesterday, I was uncomfortable with that because I need a text that somehow helps me with my, my issues. 
Okay. So I want to uh, bring to your attention a, a darker side of all of this. What if Abraham's Lech Lecha is a response to Thomas Choron Alpene Terachoviv? What if this self-imposed exile, he hears a voice, go out, leave your land, take your wife and your brother and your nephew and go to the land that I shall see you, a land that's famine. ur Kasdim was the center of Mesopotamia. It was the center of culture. We know that archaeologically. To leave that and go into a wilderness. You know, I have some patients who I don't see for a year or two. And the commonest reason is the ones that leave me never come back. We know I'm a lousy doctor. But the ones that come back to me, there's usually a reason. And it's usually they've been in jail. And in Indiana, it's usually child support, which is ridiculous. Why would you put someone in jail so that he now certainly can't do child support because he can't, he can't earn a living? Why would that be the punishment for someone not paying his child support? But there you have it. It's really a backward state. So he comes out of jail. And often they've had a religious experience in jail. They are transformed. But what transformed them? Well, it was the exile, the act of getting out, being put in a different place. And they come back with having now seen the Lord and asking me whether I know the Lord. <laughs> right? What happens? What, what, what is going on? in this wonderful character, if we just go dig deeper and look at it like a Shakespearean character, he is now seen his brother die in front of his eyes. And we've quoted Breshit Rabbah. It's also quoted in Jubilees and also in Nehemiah. It's quoted in, in the Quran and in Pseudophilo. Each version adds a twist. In Jubilees, the fire is not in a furnace, but is caused by Abraham burning down Terach's idol worship, and Haran dies trying to rescue his father's idols. Now, that's a very early witness, Jubilees. That's intertestamental. That's a very early Midrash. He gets burnt because he set fire to the place, and Haran is trying to rescue his father's idols and dies in the process. Talk about the guilt. In Pirkei Rebeleza, Charon hides Avraham for 13 years in the cave to protect him before he's arrested. And so maybe the incident of the fire and Charon's death, that's what sends Terach and Avraham on a wandering odyssey to get away from the pain of loss. No matter how you read it, though, Avraham plays a role in Charon's death, directly or indirectly. He is implicated in every story that I have told you one way or the other. Now, if we dive into the Sharha Gilgulim of Reb Chaim Vital of the Arizal, he picks up on those hints, those subterranean psychological hints. And in the book of reincarnation, he traces the souls of biblical characters. And Haran is the Gilgul of Hevel. And Aharon is the Gilgal of Haran. So in this first framing, it understands Haran's death as atoning for mankind's initial turn to idolatry. And more importantly, 
that Haran and Hevel both die at their brother's hands. Aaron, whose name is Aharon, or Aleph with Haron, <laughs> is seen as the next Gilgal, since his role in the incident of the golden calf is led to death by fire of his sons, not of an Aviyu. This is all straight out of the Shara Gilgulim, not me. And the commentators, like I've quoted you, Ibn Ezra, note the phrase Alpanay in both instances, meaning not of an Aviyu was Alpanay Aviv. They died in front of, they were taking the strange fire. And here too, Haran dies Alpanay Aviv. And who's the cause of this death in Haran? His own brother, Abraham, directly or indirectly. And beyond being forced to leave Urkazdim, what other impacts might such fraught events have had on Avraham? Now, I, this is not mine. I'm quoting from VBM Torah and Reb Tzvi Gromet. These people have posited these ideas that Avraham, in response to this trauma, the trauma of this death becomes a wanderer. And as a result of it, just like my patient who's seen the Lord and has had a religious experience and now goes to meetings, Avraham is now developed three qualities. Familial loyalty, care of his father, Sedek and Mishpat. He now is very righteous and just and he takes God to task. Sedek and Mishpat and family care and chesed. So Avram, the meter of chesed and the meter of family loyalty and making sure that there is progeny for his father. And this idea of justice and righteousness comes out of this traumatic experience. And so therefore we see that the guilt drives a person uh, to reformation, that guilt can be healthy from this story. Three other times in Bracious, we see Avraham dealing with fire. Number one, the Brit Bain Habatarim, he has to walk through the fire. Number two, rescuing Lot from Sodom, which goes up in fire. And the Akedah. Each time, fire is a test, the symbol of death, perhaps a trigger of Avraham's own trauma or guilt. At Brit Bain Habatarim, God reminds Avraham that he saved him from or custom. There's a literary connection. The purported location of the furnace and a great dread befalls Abraham as he goes through this post-traumatic syndrome. He's been triggered by that image of ur -Kazdim. Leaping flames of the smoking furnace dance before him. At Sodom, Abraham only has eyes for the smoke the furnace he cannot leave behind his psyche. But this time, at least, he successfully saves Haran's son. He has fixed the son by saving him, the son of Haran, Lot. Lot, who Avraham takes with him everywhere, protects and riches, saves him twice. Avraham's penance to forever be his brother's keeper. This brotherly love underscores the most ironic line in Bracious, given the sibling dynamics of the rest of the book of Bracious. Let there not be dissension between us or our shepherds, because we are each other's brother, the uncle tells the nephew. What does this mean for the tests involving his own sons? 
being commanded to banish Chagar and Yishmael twice could not have helped but invoke Avram's own inherent need to protect and care for his family at all costs, not to mention echoing his own father's facing his son's death. And that's why you see the tension between his approach and Sarah, who wants to get rid of her. But Avram also struggles with defining what constitutes his family. He is forced to prioritize Sarah and later Yitzchak over Hagar and Yishmael. And even so, how can he be responsible for harming them? This question becomes even more poignant for the last trial, the Akedah. Can he truly face the flames and overcome his trauma, putting Isaac on the altar and then lighting it aflame with fire? One telling detail in the Akedah may provide a clue. Despite the flint, the ash, the fire, being mentioned over and over, and despite the text detailing of Abraham's methodical building of the altar and binding of Isaac by his hand and his feet and taking the ma'acheles and the, the, the knife, the fire is never mentioned being lit. Never. Perhaps that is one step too far for Abraham. Yet the Midrashim tell us that it is as if Yitzchak was in fact burned and his ashes became a common motif in Jewish thought. So what does that mean for us? That fraught relationship between father and son, that fathers have to circumcise their sons, do injury to their sons, bringing a carbon of their sons on the altar of expectations. What does this mean? Abraham may have withheld his hand and killing, but in his tearful gaze, Yitzchak had already been consumed in the fiery trauma, his ashes intermingled with Haran's. I love that metaphor. When he sees the heavens open, it's like he was. He was burnt to a crisp. He went up. Now him coming back is a reincarnation. He's never the same. The trauma is never the same. And this post-Akeda trial, this intergenerational trauma is now fated to be passed down. Yitzchak flees to his brother Yishmael in Be'er Lachai Re'ei, just like Abraham fleed from his fire, perhaps to commiserate with his brother who had also faced a near-death experience due to the father. Yitzchak's eyes are weakened by witnessing their shared trauma, and this trauma echoes through a series of painful events down to the Yaakov and Esau story and from there to the betrayal of Yosef and his brothers. It is as if it all started with Abraham and before Abraham, in that gap between Noah and Lech Lecha, in standing in Ur in defense of monotheism. This is the cost he pays time and time in his trials, putting God above family. And it's this lesson of this story that would be a Shakespearean tragedy if we, as a sacred community looking at this sacred text, don't do something with it midrashically for our own spiritual lives. And I don't mean the two types of Nisyonis that the Slonim Rebbe was talking. That's okay, you know, that's okay for high school. Yep, there are two types. One has to be the, the once-in-a-lifetime type. One is the everyday grunge. I like it. It's very nice. But what does it mean for our own inner work as a nation as we deal with this 
trauma that was the origin behind the chosen people, this traumatic event. Working out this trauma is the underlying theme of the rest of the book of Bracious. And it echoes far beyond through Moshe and Aaron, the period of the judges, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, even the death of the 10 martyrs. And I would say even down to our own times as we also had to consume uh, the children into the flames of Auschwitz. Yet it's the guilt that initially arises from this trauma that presents the new solution to the challenge of humanity's creation. You know, we used to talk about climate change 20 years ago, but nothing, nothing fell on deaf ears. Now, as we talk about it and we see what's going on, there is this collective guilt of what have we done to this planet Earth? And this wonderful thing going up into space on Friday <laughs> was very, very cool and very, very Star Trek-y. But what you could see from space is this diminishing blueness and this diminishing thickness of our beautiful ozone layer. And that guilt must now propel us into new solutions. After the sin of the Garden of Eden, Chava and Adam blame each other for the downfall. And Cain cannot bear the guilt. And the generation before the flood doesn't even feel guilt. And their land is filled with violence. So what makes Noah righteous is the fact that he wallows in his guilt after the flood and his guilt turns into a drunken shame. But from him comes the generation of Avraham. And Avraham is the first to respond to his own trauma and guilt by response by humanity, by taking responsibility, by taking care of family, by tzedek, tzedek and righteousness and this meter of unconditional loving of the other. This is how he transformed his trauma into a positive uh, force, taking responsibility for the harm caused to others and being driven to act upon those feelings. By transforming his guilt into acts of chesed, he shows grace through being proactive, unconditional compassion and kindness. And we understand from the Midrash that it was this very response that drew God to Avraham in the first place. Avraham will indeed pass down the lessons of righteousness and justice to his children, but above all, he is their role model of chesed. Now, I want to share with you, coming back to the Slonim, I can't leave the Rebbe alone, but I want to share with you that in the Akedah itself, something very interesting, and then we'll stop. At the moment, he wants to appease the divine and somehow substitute for his son a propitiatory of offering to the Lord. He opens his eyes, he lifts his eyes, and what does he see? He sees a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And he brings him up as a substitute. What's this word, achar? The Mepharshim go crazy. What does it mean? Another? There wasn't another isle. Were there two isles? Was it achar, meaning it was watching the whole time? What is this achar? So the Chose from Lublin has a very interesting understanding of what that achar means. And he says that the word achar means another time. 
Acher, that the Akedis Yitzchak was not a one-time event, in opposition to the Slonim Rebbe and Reb Simcha Zissel of Brody, who said, oh, it's a one-time event versus the Lech Lecha, which is every day. No, 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 not so fast. The Akedis Yitzchak repeats itself afterwards in different forms. I love this. This goes along with what we were saying, that in the resolution of guilt and transformation into a positive outcome, for, because we all sin and we all betray, what do we do with that betrayal? Do we wallow in the guilt or we transform the guilt? Here he says that that achar, this substitute offering, continues in different forms. God never commands the sacrifice of a child. In place of this test, God tests us through our entanglement of the thicket of human frailties. So beautiful. That substitute is our response to the guilt. And our human frailty is that thicket that his horns are caught in. We so often feel as though we, like that ram, are trapped in our vices, our addictions, our weaknesses, our betrayals. That while we seek to advance and move forward, we are held back and restrained by our negative habits and instincts. The Akeda which God expects of us is to continually and determinedly struggle to release ourselves from this thicket and devote ourselves to God. I think also the thicket are the resentments that we love to nurse that keep us hunkered down. Just as Abraham succeeded in disentangling the ram, I never thought of it that way. There was a process in disentangling the horn from the thicket. I never saw that in the Mepharshim until, until the Choyzer. Just as Abraham succeeded in disentangling the ram and offering it as a sacrifice, God will never again demand the kind of Moloch worship that he demanded from Avram. Instead, he demands that we struggle, that we work hard to release ourselves from the entanglement of our negative inclinations, and not ever feel content remaining in the thicket of our faults and weaknesses. I, I thought that was so cute. So then how do we talk about this first and last trial, my friends? The first trial being the fire of Ur-Kazdim, well, then we could suggest that that is our, all our traumas from our genes, our epigen epigenetic traumas, our childhood traumas, then our betrayals that we fostered onto others and the harm we caused others. And we live with that guilt. You know, we try to make amends, but we have to live with the memories of what we did to those who we loved. And as we confront that, we are being charged to disentangle ourselves from that first trial. That the Lech Lecha, which is the first trial in the Mishnah, may well have been the trial. That our path through life and struggling and enduring, enduring life with those feelings, with the guilt, is for us to get to the 10th trial, which is the trial of disentanglement. Finally, through the 10th trial, just like Abraham, we go through those 10 trials. The Magid said that. We all go through those 10 trials. And that at that 10th trial, we're finally able to disentangle ourselves from the resentments and from the pain and the trauma we've caused others and to transform it into grace and to kindness and to unconditional love.
Have a wonderful week, everyone. Love you all.